And please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning we'll be considering just one verse, the 13th verse of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me just say thank you uh, to the session and to Pastor Phillips for the kind invitation to be with you all this morning, to open God's Word and to proclaim its truth. But more than that, uh, thank you for loving a seminarian and his new wife and new baby uh, eight years ago now, uh, since we were on staff here at Second Presbyterian Church. Um, Eight years since our first daughter was baptized right over here. Um, I tell my uh, brothers and friends in seminary uh, in Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary who are looking perhaps for a church home, that you have to go to Second Presbyterian Church because they love their seminarians at Second Pres. And thank you all for loving us uh, the way that you did, the way that you have uh, even since we've moved on uh, to Florida and now to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It's a joy to be back with you all this morning. We'll give ear now to the reading of God's inerrant, infallible, and life-giving word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you, believers. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we pray now that you would, by your word and spirit, speak to us. Uh, Lord Jesus, from your throne at your Father's right hand, we pray uh, that you would feed us with the manna of your word. Father, that you would plant its seed deep within our hearts, that it would take root and spring up and bear abundant fruit, the fruit of holiness, the fruits of repentance, the fruits of the Spirit. So come and meet with us now, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, for 800 years, the Magna Carta has been a worldwide symbol of liberty. It even inspired our own Thomas Jefferson and is echoed in our Declaration of Independence It was signed in 1215. The Magna Carta was a covenant between England's King John and a group of barons guaranteeing certain inalienable rights like equal treatment under the law, the right to private property, and the right to a fair trial. The copies of this historic covenant were then signed and sealed and delivered throughout the realm And for a time, all but three of those copies were lost, buried in the sands of time. Until January 1st of 1629, when a London lawyer was in the shop of his tailor, who was preparing to cut strips for paper collars from a thick, weathered parchment. And the lawyer said, stop, let me see that. And he looked at it and he could tell that this was not any ordinary document or leftover newspaper, but that it was special and significant. And so he took the document and gave it as a gift to his friend, Sir Robert Cotton, who as a student of antiquity immediately recognized the priceless gift. For it bore the unmistakable thick wax seal of King John. And while the Thessalonians made an infinitely greater discovery of a declaration of 
infinitely greater liberty in Paul's preaching. As they listened to the good news of canceled sin and peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on the cross, their hearts recognized the unmistakable seal of God's divine authority. Through the voice of a man they'd only just met, the Thessalonians heard the voice of God, their good shepherd. They knew that the word Paul proclaimed wasn't just the word of man, but that it was truly the word of God. The first Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13 has much to teach us about the authority of God's word. And I think in particular, 1 Thessalonians 2.13 has much to teach us about the authority of God's word when it is preached by a lawfully ordained minister. I wonder how you process preaching. Wherein lies the source of a sermon's authority? What makes a sermon good? What inspires you to heed the preacher's call in a sermon? Why should you obey it and trust it? And these questions are equally pressing, both for the parishioner and for the preacher. And here in this verse we see, what I hope to show you with God's help this morning, that the written word of God becomes the living word of Christ when it is faithfully proclaimed by a minister of the gospel. The written word of God becomes the living word of Christ when it is faithfully preached by a gospel minister. I want to talk this morning about both the preaching, actually we'll spend a bit more time on the preaching of God's word, and then we'll talk a little bit about the hearing of God's word, particularly what makes faithful preaching and what makes faithful hearing. And we see that faithful gospel preaching from Paul's example is done in all humility. Faithful gospel preaching is done in all humility. Our brother Jonathan referenced Acts 17 last night in which Paul and Silas came to Thessalonica, uh, which was a large metropolis nestled along the eastern shore of Greece. And per Paul's custom, upon arriving to this new city, he made a beeline for the synagogue and began reasoning with the Jews. And for three consecutive Sabbaths, he proclaimed the gospel in the synagogue to these Jews. And now three weeks is not a particularly long mission trip. Maybe that would classify as a short-term mission trip, especially when compared to the two years he spent in Ephesus. But three consecutive Sabbaths was long enough to arouse the anger of a Jewish mob that drove Paul and his companions from the city. And by God's grace, three consecutive Sabbaths was also long enough to plant a church of Jewish and Grecian converts. And sometime later, Paul received a report from Timothy that even in the face of fierce persecution, the church in Thessalonica was thriving. And so it's no wonder that Paul's letter to them is is brimming with pastoral pride and affection and gratitude. And while most of Paul's letters dedicate just one of the opening paragraphs to Thanksgiving, Paul gives the first three chapters of this first letter to Thessalonians to tell them how grateful he is to God for them and to celebrate their faithfulness and steadfastness to Christ. And that thanksgiving in this verse before us 
focuses in with laser-like precision on one particular target. Back to verse 13, Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. The first hallmark of Paul's humble preaching, remember, Faithful preaching is done in all humility. And the first hallmark of Paul's humility is seen, interestingly enough, in his pronouns. In his pronouns. At one point during their years together on the Lakers, Shaquille O'Neal went to Kobe Bryant on behalf of the rest of his teammates who were upset with Kobe for not passing the ball enough, for being a ball hog. And the larger, much older Shaq reminded Kobe... Kobe, there's no I in team. And with a smile, Kobe Bryant responded, yes, but there is an M and an E in it. There you go. (laughs) Which spells me. All right, we're good. Um, But you'll find no such ego in the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't a ball hog. Paul wasn't a me monster. He consistently reminded these Thessalonian Christians that he wasn't a one-man show. It wasn't all about him. He was a member of of a ministry team. And this he did in part through his use of first person plural pronouns. If you were to scan just this first letter to the Thessalonians, you would find over 100 we's, us's, and ours. First person plural pronouns. We's, us's, and ours. But how many I's or me's or my's do you think there are? Only four in the entire letter. 100 We's, us's, and ours. And who is this we, us, and our? If you were to turn back to the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1, you would see that in most of these cases, Paul is referring to his team, Silvanus, that is Silas, and Timothy, and Paul together. And it's, not, it's no, uh, worth noting that though Paul was their, their captain as the apostle of Jesus Christ, he, he didn't feel the need to elevate himself above his companions or, or to hoard glory of gospel ministry to himself. But rather, he was pleased to share this honor with Silas and Timothy. He was pleased to elevate them because Paul didn't think too highly of himself. But he referred to himself as the least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15.9, least of the saints in Ephesians 3 verse 8. And while he did claim to be the chief of something, it was the chief of sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul's humility is evident in his pronouns. But we also see that Paul's humility is evident in his praise. We give God... Uh, We thank God constantly for this. I wonder how you would fill in that blank. Is there anything in your life for which you give God thanks constantly? Constantly. If Paul were sitting among us this morning, he'd rise to his feet and say, the Thessalonian Christians, I give God thanks for them constantly because when they heard him preach, they forgot all about him and only heard God through him. Think about what Paul was thanking God for. He was thanking God for the ability to disappear before the Christians in Thessalonica. He was giving God praise because when they heard him, 
They forgot all about him and only heard God through him. He was thrilled that that God and not Paul had captured their hearts and allegiance. He was thrilled that God, not Paul, had inspired their faith because he knew that God alone could save them from their sins and fill them with the joy of their salvation. It's the same humility we saw in the cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, isn't it? In John chapter 3, you remember the scene. John the Baptist, who'd enjoyed a meteoric rise in his own ministry. You remember that everyone in Jerusalem and Judea and the broader regions were coming to the wilderness to be baptized by John. They had heard about John. They knew his name. They wanted his ministry for a time. But John was only the the last star, the morning star, the last to, to fade out before the rising of the Son of Righteousness, the last of the Old Testament prophets pointing forward to the Lamb of God who would come in the fullness of time and take away the sins of the world. And there's this poignant scene where John understood something that the rest of his disciples had not yet come to understand. Jesus and his disciples had come and set up shop baptizing on the bank of the Jordan River just downstream or maybe upstream from John. And a river of John's disciples began to flow from John to Jesus. And the disciples of John didn't understand and they came to John to ask him, Master, don't you see what's, what's going on here? They're leaving us and they're going to him. And do you remember what John said? He said, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, John says, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And so we see that Paul, like John, was was thrilled to shrink his way to glory as Christ, through his preaching, was exalted and gained preeminence in the heart and lives of his people. So to the preachers and to the aspiring preachers, to the ordained teachers of God's word, to the seminary professors, to the seminary students, I ask this, what are you after? What are you after? What's your chief end as a preacher and teacher of God's word? Now, I'm not asking for your ministerial data form answer. I'm not asking for your prim and proper presbytery examination answer, though I hope these are true. I'm asking not just you, but myself as well. I'm asking all of us to evaluate the deepest secret heart motives behind our ministries. Who's it all for? Who's it for? Whose name are you hoping to magnify? Whose kingdom are you hoping to make great? For whom are you seeking disciples? Would you rather at the end of a service overhear people talking about how great the sermon was or how great the God of that sermon was? Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting our churches to grow. There's nothing wrong with wanting to write things that people other than our spouses will be forced to read. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with wanting to come and preach conferences and, and, uh, and caring about sermon audio downloads as long as it's all for Christ. As long as we're delighted to disappear that in all things Jesus might have preeminence. As long as our aim is to make followers of Christ and not 
ourselves. I have to believe this is one of the reasons why one thing many of the reformers held in common was they did not want to be marked, their burial, their graves to be, to be marked with some granite shrine. Paul's humility is seen in his, in his pronouns, in his praise, and finally it's seen in his preaching, that is in the priority of his preaching, in the substance of his sermons. What was Paul's priority in preaching? What was Paul preaching? What did he come to Thessalonica to say? He wasn't preaching philosophical musings. He wasn't preaching sociological studies or pop psychology. He wasn't preaching political opinions or or cultural commentary or hot takes on breaking news. Paul didn't come to preach himself. Paul came to preach the word of God. That's what he says to the Thessalonians. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us. That's what we preach to you. The word of God. What great temptation preachers face in every age. To preach everything and anything but the word of God. One need only scan lightly the history of preachers back to the apostles and back to the prophets to see that oftentimes in redemptive history, faithful preaching of the whole counsel of God's word does not end well for the preacher. They sawed a prophet in half. All of the apostles, save one, died excruciating martyrs' deaths. They killed our master. Not for what he did, but for what he said. And since no servant is greater than his master, we must recognize that this temptation, the temptation to preach anything and everything but the word of God is great. Because the word of God, like a rose, has thorns, doesn't it? Thorns that cut, thorns that slash, and thorns that draw blood. The word of God contains holy laws that convict us when read rightly. Laws which condemn us, laws which judge us. The word of God has terrifying pronouncements and prophecies that challenge us. But Paul insisted on preaching the thorny bits of God's word so that he could preach the rose to which every thorn is servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, the rose of Sharon, whose holy fragrance is sweet, whose steadfast love for sinners is petal soft, and whose crimson blood was shed on the cross to take away the sins of his people, who is altogether lovely, the fairest of 10,000. Paul was willing. In fact, he knew he had to preach the thorny bits so that he could preach the flower. He knew that That grace is only amazing because wretchedness is awful and the word of God must do its work in breaking and in binding up in Christ, in convicting in sin and comforting in grace. And Paul was able to say to these Thessalonians, in all humility, you heard the word of God from us. You heard the word of God from us. And he said the same to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Before leaving them, he said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Can we preachers and teachers of God's word say the same? Can our elders, who've been tasked with protecting the purity of our pulpits and podiums, say the same? 
you heard the word of God from us. Oh, may we never be ashamed of the gospel. May we never feel the need to apologize for the edges of God's word. And may we never tamper with the Bible or sand down its, its holy edges or, or turn down its heavenly heat to make it more palatable to modern sensitivities which seem more sensitive now than ever before. May we preach the whole counsel of God. You know, I think it's true. If you're unwilling to say what God says in Scripture with the same clarity and force with which God has said it, it's not because you're being gracious. It's because your pride has made you cruel. Is there anything more cruel than withholding from sinners the full cure which God has offered to them in Scripture because you think you know better. Can you imagine how outraged you would be if your spouse was receiving chemotherapy treatment for cancer? Some of you don't have to imagine it. Only to learn that that one of the technicians or one of the nurses was tampering with the saving potion because they thought they knew better. So we must preach the whole counsel of God's word without fear or favor from Genesis to Revelation. Our charter is to preach the word with all humility as men under authority, men gripped by the fear of God, men who have voluntarily entered into the ring of stricter judgment. Don't you know, brothers, that's what we've done. Elders in this room and within the sound of my voice that when we say I do on the day of our ordinations and installations, we are seeing yes to what James warns. Not many of you should desire to be teachers, for we know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We'll be held to a higher standard. What we say matters more than most because we're charged with proclaiming God's word. And so when we say yes on that day, and yes every subsequent day after, we are voluntarily stepping into that tighter ring of stricter judgment. And so we should be men gripped by a holy fear, terrified of stepping out from beneath the protective shade of God's word, terrified of saying, thus saith the Lord when God has not said it, or taking liberties with God's word, or playing fast and loose with God's word. We should be riveted to the Bible. And you in the pews should not only expect that kind of preaching, you should demand it and be filled with a holy outrage when that kind of a preaching is withheld from you. The greatest fear of the 19th century Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane was preaching himself It's evident when you scan his diary entries, these very honest diary entries of the young preacher. He said this on November 14th. I fear the love of applause or effect goes a great way. May God keep me from preaching myself instead of Christ crucified. He wrote this on July 5th. Eventful week, semicolon. One year I have preached Jesus Have I? Or myself? And then he comforts himself with this. I've often preached myself also, but Jesus I have preached. 
McShane's greatest fear was that he would preach himself instead of Christ. That he would fill a church with people devoted to him, people who loved him and trusted him and would follow him, but who knew not the Lord Jesus Christ and were destined for hell. So may it be our fear and may it be our aim as preachers and teachers of God's word and men who aspire to that sacred office to preach the word faithfully with fear and trembling and with all humility. Faithful preaching is done in all humility. In the second place this morning, we see that faithful hearing, now it's your turn, faithful hearing of the word of God um, takes a very definitive shape in verse 13. I'll read it once more. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Faithful hearing of God's word receives it as such. Faithful hearing of God's word receives it as such. Paul uses two similar Greek words with different shades of meaning to emphasize this point. The first word he uses is the word receive. When you received the word. This word receive means to come close and to take it. It's a word that denotes strong personal initiative, even even aggression. That's the word that Mark used to describe the way the Lord Jesus took Peter and James and John up with him to the Mount of, of Transfiguration. And the second word, accept, means to welcome or to take in. It's the same word that the writer to the Hebrews used to describe the way in which Rahab, the Jericonian harlot, took in the two Hebrew spies and hid them deep within the chambers, or was it on the roof, of her own home to hide them from the guards who were hunting them. And so we see these two words, receive and accept, are braided together to describe the Thessalonians' faithful hearing of the word. You received it and you accepted it. You took it with you and you buried it deep inside. Now these two words don't mean that the Thessalonians just gustled down whatever Paul was pouring thoughtlessly with some implicit faith. But rather... We know that Paul commended the Bereans in that same chapter of Acts 17. Right after Thessalonica, he went to Berea. And he commended the Bereans for receiving, same word, receiving the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So you see, faithful hearing doesn't mean listening without thinking. It doesn't mean not critically analyzing the preaching that you are hearing. It doesn't mean wrestling with the word as Jacob wrestled with the Lord. It means receiving the word and accepting it as scripture when it is evident that it is scripture that's being preached. So I want you to put yourself in that Thessalonian synagogue just for a moment. And you can see the congregation gathered and Paul standing and reasoning with them and preaching to them. Can you see the, the hunger and thirsting for righteousness in their eyes? Can you see them weighing and carefully considering his words as he made his argument? Can, can you see them testing Paul's words with, 
with what they knew of the scriptures of the Old Testament and examining them in that light? Can you see their cheeks blush with the shame of guilt as Paul told them that the wages of sin is death and all of sin have fallen short of the glory of God as Paul told them of their wretchedness? Can, can you see the, the grimace of pain streak across their face when he told them the terrible news that since God is infinitely holy, the soul that sins shall die. Oh, but can you see? Can you see the light of heaven break on their faces? Tears fill their eyes when Paul told them that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you see them reaching out eagerly the hands of faith to accept this grace of God that that God was offering to them through this sinful man, Paul? Can you see them hiding that word away deep in their hearts? And can you hear the singing? Oh, the singing in those Thessalonian synagogues is a special kind of singing. It's the singing that only happens when it pours forth from souls that have been set free by their bondage to sin and death. It's the singing of hearts that have been liberated from their captor, who is the devil, and hearts that have have had the shackles of, of, of Satan's cold tyranny burst from them so that they're finally, for the first time ever, free to fly to Christ in praise and worship. Can you see the gospel seed taking root in their heart and springing up and bearing abundant fruit in their lives? If you'd been in that Thessalonian synagogue on that day, you would have seen them receiving and accepting Paul's preaching, but as what? As what? Not the word of Paul, not as the word of men, but what it really is, what it truly is, the word of God. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? That's quite a statement. The written word of God becomes the living word of Christ when it is faithfully preached by a gospel minister. A few weeks ago, Jordan asked me to rearrange the children's uh, playroom, homeschooling room by moving television from one wall to the next, and I let out a sigh It was a groan, really, um, because I knew how many screws and drywall anchors I had used to destroy the wall behind that television to secure it to the wall, because that television was costly and it was heavy. So I had to use a lot of anchors to keep it in place, and in the very same way as we we consider the, the valuable and heavy truth that Paul is presenting for us here in this passage, we needn't hang it by just one anchor. When Scripture especially offers us more anchors to secure it to our hearts permanently. Romans 10.14, oftentimes cited as the preacher's favorite passage, Romans 10.14 is one of the strongest passages about the necessity of, of preaching, and it's usually mistranslated. Our English Standard Versions say, how then will they call on him in whom 
they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom, in him, of whom they've never heard? But interestingly, these, these prepositions, in and of, are absent from the original. And so I'm going to read it again with those prepositions which are not in the original, removed, and it transforms the meaning, which I believe is the original meaning of Paul in Romans 10. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? So you see, to hear and believe the word of God as it is faithfully preached is actually to hear and believe God himself. And that's even more clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, where Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors, apart in 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God making his appeal through us. Again, the we that Paul uses means that he's not speaking exclusively about his own apostolic authority, but I believe generally about the supernatural work of the Spirit through preaching. When the Bible is faithfully proclaimed by a lawfully ordained minister, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ owns the testimony of his servant and he robes it in his own authority and that means it bears the power to bind our consciences when it's the word of God that's being faithfully preached, to dictate the course of our lives, to tell us how we should live and how we should think, how we shouldn't live and how we shouldn't think, to teach us the path of righteousness. This is so beautifully articulated in our larger catechism, question 160. What is required of those that hear the word preached? Answer. It is required of those that hear the word preached, listen now, that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer, examining what they hear by the scriptures, receive the truth with faith, love, meekness, and readiness of mind as the word of God, as the word of God. And so I ask again, how do you process preaching? Wherein lies the source of a sermon's force and authority? When you walk away from church, what's your rubric for grading the sermon? When is it good? When is it bad? I think if we're being honest, all too often we rely on a worldly rubric, don't we? We rely on a worldly rubric. rubric. Our, Our positive or negative opinions about the preacher, his appearance... His hair, his voice, his volume, his tone, his pace, his use of illustrations, his lack of use of illustrations, where he went to seminary, whether or not he has met the minimum Lewis or Tolkien quote quota. These things determine all too often, sadly, whether we like his preaching. What childish, what selfish criteria When hearing a sermon, only two questions matter. Is this man faithfully preaching the word? And has this man been lawfully set aside to do it? Is this man faithfully preaching the word of God? And has he been lawfully set aside 
to do it. And if your answer to these two questions is yes, then in that moment, it is not a man that you are hearing, but the Lord Jesus Christ making his appeal to his bride from his throne at his father's right hand through fallible men. John Calvin said, our king wishes to be heard through the voice of his ministers. And so to reject the faithful preaching of a man just because you don't like him for some reason. And even ministers know what this feels like, not to like certain ministers and to struggle to accept their teaching for less than biblical reasons. But when we reject the faithful preaching of a man, we are rejecting not the man ultimately, but we are rejecting Christ himself. But there's something else here that's not just cautionary, but inspiring. That really ought to change the course of our entire lives. If you knew that tomorrow on the Lord's Day, Jesus Christ was going to come and speak to his church tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening, what would you do? Honestly, you'd clear your schedule. You would bend your life around getting to that place, that appointed place at that appointed time to hear what the Spirit of Christ has to say to his church. Nothing would get in your way. For we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we must make every effort to come to that place at the appointed time. And that place is at the church. And the appointed time is decided by the session to be the hour of the call to worship. Are you doing that? In Florida, um, we live in Mississippi now, but um, in Florida, um, drivers are far too um, affected by, by just minor atmospheric changes, which you'd think is very strange since it, you know, in the summer, Florida, you can set your watch to the torrential downpours in the summer. But nevertheless, I remember pastoring in Florida. If it was windy outside, you would see a steep drop-off in church attendance. Uh, If it was raining outside, you'd see a steep drop-off in church attendance. And I just wonder, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be safe and wise on the Lord's Day, and if there's a natural disaster, that you shouldn't, you know, put that maybe in the providentially hindered category. I guess what I'm asking is how how easy is it for the world to blow you off your course? The course of discipline. Yes, we might be able to say, I believe this. I believe that when the gospel, when the Bible is faithfully preached by a gospel minister, that the triune God is speaking to his church, that Jesus is taking the heart of his bride in his hands and speaking to her. But there's also a really great football game on television. But it's really important that my kids get to this travel soccer game a couple counties away. Oh, I'm just really tired. After all, the Sabbath is a day of rest, isn't it? How easy is it to blow you off your course and to keep you from coming to hear what what Christ through his spirit has to say to the church? My friends, there is nothing more important in all the world than feasting upon the word of God. 
than calibrating your soul to the truth of God's word, which Jesus prayed to the Father, is the instrument which God uses to sanctify us. That is, the word of God. The word of God are the, are the bolt cutters that Jesus uses, that the Spirit uses to free us from all of those sins which have entangled us and, and weigh us down. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to put that sinful pattern of behavior or thought or speech to death? Do you want to cultivate righteous disciplines of, of godliness to be the man or the woman that your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will want to honor and emulate, then you need the Word of God. You need to attend to it as the Thessalonians attended to it, receiving it and accepting it when it's faithfully preached as the Word of God. Do you remember the experience of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. It's Luke 24. It's the most amazing passage, mysterious. These two unnamed disciples are walking along the road to Emmaus and they are reflecting on the painful memories of the preceding week. They're walking together and they are talking about the triumphal entry and they're talking about Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they're talking about how he was convicted by a kangaroo court by night in the presence of the Sanhedrin at Caiaphas' house. And how he was spat upon and beaten and stricken and afflicted and mocked. And how he was hauled before Pilate and falsely accused. And how he was scourged within an inch of his life and stripped naked and mocked and crucified and speared and pried off that cross and laid down in the tomb. They were talking about these things, maybe wondering what happened. Was it all for naught? And then another man joins them on the road. And it's the risen Lord Jesus Christ. But in the mystery of that passage, His appearance is veiled or their eyes are veiled so that they can't recognize him. Do you remember what Dr. Luke writes about about that conversation on the road to Emmaus? He says, beginning with the law and the prophets, this man who they didn't know was Christ, beginning with the law and the prophets, this mystery man, began explaining to these two disciples how it was all about Jesus, how it's always been about Jesus, How every prophet pointed forward to Christ, the final consummate prophet of God who would speak the last word of God to his people. How every single drop of lamb's blood that was shed throughout the history of Israel was just pointing forward to the blood that would be shed by the lamb of God on the cross to atone for all of our sins. How every king, every sinful, wicked king, even those Sinful kings who were good, righteous men after God's own heart were just preparing the hearts of God's people to receive their true king who would sit at his father's right hand and rule until he makes all of his enemies his footstool. And Jesus is explaining to these men how it's all been about him. 
It's all been about Christ. And do you remember what happened next? They came to sit down to eat together, these three men. And the mystery man took bread and he broke it before them. And in that moment, their eyes were open. And the veil had been torn away and they saw him, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, having burst the gates of hell from the hinges and and opened the tomb and walked out in triumph. And then he was gone. But then as those two men reflected back on their road to Emmaus and on the conversation with this mystery man before they knew who he was, do you remember what they said to one another? They said, we knew there was something special. We knew there was something special about what he was telling us. You know why? Did not our hearts burn within us Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke? And so, brothers and sisters, may our hearts burn within us as we sit at the feet of Christ, as we receive and accept the word of Christ as it is faithfully preached through the fallible vessel of a sinful preacher. And may we be changed. And may we bear the fruit of that change in our lives. All to the glorious grace of God's praise. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, O Lord, for this gift that is your word. Thank you, O Lord, for the way in which you hide this treasure in earthen vessels. Sinful men who have the most sacred privilege, the most grave privilege of proclaiming your word. Father, I pray that your preachers, your aspiring preachers would commit maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time right now that I will preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. May I be a man of God's word riveted to the Bible and may I be able to say to my people what Paul said to his, you received the word of God from me that our hands might be clean of the blood of all. Father, may we who sit under preaching, pray for our preachers. Pray that God would keep them humble. Pray that God would fill their hearts with a love for Christ so that they might not preach to us an unfelt and unloved Christ. And Father, would you anoint our pulpits that from them would flow forth rivers of living water as from the rock in the wilderness and that your people would come and drink And that in drinking, they would find satisfaction for their souls. A satisfaction that this world cannot touch. And Father, we pray that you would sanctify us by your word. That you would shape and mold us after the image of Christ. Father, that you would scrape the barnacles of sin from our souls. And that you would wash us with the water that is your word. That we might be one day presented to the Lord Jesus Christ as a bride is presented to her bridegroom without spot or blemish. We pray all these things for Christ's sake and in his mighty name, amen.